Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the disastrous 1986 film Howard the Duck was originally released as Howard and You Breed of Hero, and that, despite what you read anywhere, wasn't the first feature film based on the Marvel character because Red Sonja came out in 1985. But I think I'm getting a bit too close to my other podcast there. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is book reviewer Joanne Shepherd. Joe, what are you up to and where can we find it? You can find me mostly on Twitter, where I spend far too much time where I am Red Sky at Night and I also have a book reviews website which is called Breakfast at Libraries and that is at joanne-shepherd.com Okay, well I can't really because it would not be fair on the existence of books in general find a way of getting from books to your first choice which (laughs) I had completely forgotten that this existed I'm not going to thank you for reminding me of it and I don't think anyone's going to thank you after they hear this extract from it Do you see what they did there? With the bump from 1991. Joe, what's the story here? So, everyone, of course, remembers Timmy Mallet's pop exploits with Bomb Ballerina, where he did itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot shite. And then he followed it up, I think, with Seven Little Girls, which is sort of less well known, but kind of was still, I think, had some sort of chart success. But then after that, he had another single, not under the name of Bomb Ballerina, but under the name of MC Mallet, as you say, or I assume he's a, a laboured MC Hammer pun. And also there was that whole thing around sort of that time where just putting MC in front of something could make it like a bit cool and up to date, or so people thought. So this was his third single, which was called The Bump. And the only, I've never heard it played anywhere ever. I've never seen the video. However, I know of his existence because the video was filmed at Chessington World of Adventure <laughs> when I happened to be there. <laughs> So I'd, I'd gone to Chessington, so not, not even, you know, like Chessington as well, like not even Orton Towers, you know, not even the most high profile theme park. So a friend and I were at Chessington World of Adventure. I would have been about, we would have been about 14 or 15, I think 15 probably. And, you know, we'd been on a few rides and then suddenly we could sort of see there was some sort of kerfuffle going on. I mean, I say a crowd, it was a small crowd. There was a sort of a small crowd had gathered and we could see some cameras and things. And then some sort of hapless kind of production assistant came up to us and said, oh, would you like to be in Timmy Mallet's new video and we sort of said not really (laughs) (laughs) to be honest no (laughs) but and they said oh we just need some people to sort of stand in the background and we then saw Timmy himself wandering around and he was god knows why but he was dressed in a kind of a lurex Elvis jumpsuit and wearing an Elvis wig and comedy sunglasses and it was all just sort of quite embarrassing and there were people sort of gathered around him and then we witnessed some video being filmed where he was miming to the lyrics of this song The Bump which was playing on a sort of cheap ghetto blaster that remains to this day the only time I've ever heard that song so I assume it was not a big hit and I can't find the video online anywhere because when I I actually spoke to my friend and said like we didn't agree to be in it did we we 
we didn't agree to stand in the background. I remember other people kind of standing behind him and doing a kind of, because it was called the bump, doing a kind of hip to hip bump type dance. I was like, we didn't do that. We wouldn't have done that, would we? And she said, oh, I, I can't remember. So neither of us can actually remember. So it was that, it was that low rent brush with fame that we can't even remember if we took part. I don't think we did. And if I had, I would have looked very out of place because at that time I was wearing, I would have been wearing black shorts, a black t-shirt and loads of goth jewellery and like scowling and probably black dot martins as well and i don't think i'd have looked that in keeping with the vibe that mc mallet was coming for but yeah it was dreadful it was awful if it wasn't a hit which i assume it wasn't i'm glad i have to say no it wasn't a hit but before i get into that there's something i've really got to ask which is is this some aspect of goth that i wasn't aware of where it's possible to go to chessington world of adventure it doesn't seem very in keeping with the goth aesthetic really well i was probably more of a sort of i was probably more of a kind of goth metal type I would say sort of quite grungy but my real thing was horror and Chessington had just opened their vampire ride <laughs> and that was my main reason for wanting to go with my friend and the previous year I'd been on holiday with my friend and her family and we had a sort of a bit of a, of a reunion and her brother brought his friend along who'd come on the holiday with us so we had a bit of a Chessington <laughs> a bit of a reunion at Chessington for the day I bought loads of gift shop tats related to the vampire ride in all the shops okay that makes more sense then i'm also wondering now it's just occurred to me now were they trying to capture about five years too late the glamour in inverted commas of the children's itv pop show hold tight which was was that which theme park was that filmed up but you'd have kind of like the screaming blue messiahs and people you know the, sort yeah. of the only sort of bands that could afford to get on these shows performing in front of roller coasters and yeah I if it was possibly inspired by that maybe or maybe just because if you're at a theme park there's lots of kind of bright shiny interesting sort of slightly unreal looking things around you all the time or sort of in the background but maybe they just wanted to sort of find somewhere where there would be like lots of people kind of looking happy and enjoying themselves although you know I, if I, I remember from Hold Tight it was normally kind of a bit bleak and a bit like a bit grey and raining yes <laughs> a bit like the Radio 1 Roadshow it was never actually sunny was it or it's just on Frontier it was always kind of it was sort of outdoors in the summer but quite miserable in fact I do remember at that trip to Chester we had a horrendous rain thunderstorm a huge rainstorm where we got absolutely drenched at one point so I think so I I, I mean poor Timmy I hope he didn't get soaked because it would have ruined his Elvis wig well I feel a bit sorry for him now because as I say with Hold Tight there was that weird thing between the wacky zany we are your pop pals presenters and then they cut to say the Redskins doing kick over the statues <laughs> so loads of kids thinking who are these so Timmy Mallet was a bit more in keeping with that and also if you went to the theme park you know you get people doing the video who wouldn't ask for an appearance fee you wouldn't have to have extras and so on exactly yes but it wasn't a hit no but it was produced by a guy called have you ever heard the name Nigel Wright I have not heard the name Nigel Wright as far as I'm aware he was kind of a cross between he was like the meeting point between Stock Aitken and Waterman as in people who could actually make the record whether you like them or not spot the talent put them out get the hits and Simon Cowell who just relies on popularity to make right, something popular he was like somewhere between the two and it's quite a clever position to be you know he's literally chronological 
logically somewhere between the two. Quite a good idea, except it just didn't work. He became the king of minor hits of records that got to like number 28 that were in the breakers on top of the pops and didn't go any further. He did all those, jump up. there were all those mega mixes, like the Jungle Book mega mix and so on. Yes. That was yeah, all and there him. Was grease, there was a Grease mega mix, I think, I wasn't think, there? Was that him? I think that was him as well. He definitely did. Do you remember Sophie Lawrence from EastEnders had a very short pop career? Yes. She did a cover of Looked Unkind where she wrote really fast on the mirror in the video. Yes, and then, I remember that very well. Because yeah. of that, she reviewed the singles in Smash Hits and she was really nice about Tim Machine, which has <laughs> always, always stuck in my memory. But he had the talent for spotting things like this that didn't do anything. And he obviously thought, Two Mallets done well with, you know, these kind of revivals of, they were all, because Bon Ballerina did an album, they were all kind of late 50s, early 60s novelty things, weren't they? Like, Kiss Me Honey Honey, Kiss Me Hoots Mon, yeah. They're Coming to Take Me Away, haha, which I do not want to hear. <laughs> But he'd obviously thought, okay, we move forward into the early 70s. Kenny, late period glam rock band, The Bump was quite a big hit. Why don't we do that and make it a bit more up-to-date, ravey, throwing an MC Hammer joke? Everything in place, it just isn't a hit. I think people were just sick of Timmy Mallet by then. I think so. I think Mallet was very overexposed at that point. I never really watched Whack-A-Day or anything anyway, because it was on ITV and we sort of had the BBC on. He was always on in the mornings in the summer holidays, but that wasn't what I wanted to watch in the summer holidays. I wanted to watch, like, old episodes of Champions and the Wonder Horse and perhaps that sort of American wildlife documentary survival from the 50s that always used to be on and dubbed kids TV serials like Silas and things like that and maybe a bit of Why Don't You I didn't want to watch Timmy Mallet being kind of up to date and cheerful that was not what I wanted so I used to find him quite I, I, I didn't really like him found him quite irritating I mean, he's <laughs> probably a very nice man in fact I think he is a very nice man and when he was performing the bump at Chessington World of Adventure he seemed quite sort of quiet and shy actually and smaller than I expected as well well I'm going to speak up for a little bit here because we sometimes had ITV on. I remember some things that really do count in his favour. He always seemed to be pleased when a band like the House Martins were on. He seemed to engage with them a bit more, like he actually had some musical taste despite his own musical output. <laughs> I remember when, you know, we were first going into Europe. I have a feeling this is going to come back in some later choices, but he did some really good sections where he explained to the kids in the kind of, you know, in that blah way, but what yeah. it was all about and why we were doing it and why it was a good thing. And the thing I really remember and this turns up on Twitter from time to time was while apartheid was still a thing while it was still you know it was still being dissembled really yeah. and remnants of it was still there they did a report from South Africa where he visited a neighbourhood and he was saying you know if you wanted to play football with your black friends you wouldn't be allowed to they'd have to play it over there you know they can't use that drinking fountain just looked in the camera and said it's not fair is it that's ama- that's really interesting actually because I, I didn't really know because I never really watched it I only ever saw sort of little bits of it I didn't know that they did things like that on his shows and as I say I get the impression he is a very nice man and he was always whenever I did see him he was always really good with kids that were appearing on it and kind of made them feel at ease and which I didn't always get the impression from some other kids TV presenters particularly some as we later found out obviously but um, yeah I think he's a genuinely nice man but at the time I'm guessing just thought well I may not have a tremendously long career so I'm just going to milk this for all it's worth and make it a third single which should never have happened and with a video that we can't find but please if anyone yeah. does know where to get hold of that I don't know about you but I'd love to see if you can be spotted in it <laughs> well so would I I had really at the time I had I had like really massive hair at the time I think I had really long hair which I had permed in very kind of tight ratty sort of curls that were quite fashionable at the time and yeah I looked shocking I'd be scowling and looking embarrassed because that was my sort of default at that but well it's still my default now actually so yeah I'd be interested to see whether me and my friend Amanda are in the background okay we're well, moving on to your next choice now and where 
Well, this clip here is because I couldn't find something else. There's murder, mystery, suspense tomorrow, and a vow to solve the Golden Gate murders. Susanna York. But I cannot leave this country until I have found out what happened to Father Thomas. And David Jansen. I'm not a diplomat. Just a I'm a cop. Stop the car. Something's wrong. I honestly don't know if I saw anything. Sister, where is he? I can't see him. He's not here. Two very dear people are dead. Someone is trying to kill me. The Golden Gate Murders. Okay, that's a trailer for the ITV Strand Murder, Mystery and Suspense, which is basically a series of made-for-TV crime thrillers they used to show in the 80s. The reason that's there, because it doesn't relate to your next choice at all, is that I couldn't find the ITV Appointment with Fear trailer, which I really <laughs> wanted to use. Because, Joe, these are some horror suites you can't identify. Yes, these are such a hugely evocative thing for me. So, one year, I was on holiday with my family. We were staying in a caravan park. I suppose I would have been about maybe seven I suppose so we'd have been talking kind of very early 80s and in the sort of shop on the caravan site they sold some sweets that were in little black plastic coffins but crucially inside the coffin as well as some well as well as some frankly mediocre sweets you got a little badge a little plastic badge that was horror themed and you didn't know which one you were going to get so they were different so there was an element of surprise there which I liked and each one was either uh, there was a Dracula there was a I think there was a like a witch there was a Frankenstein's monster I think there was a sort of kind of a creature like a sort of a slime creature blobby type thing um, what Mr. Blobby no no that would have been horror that would have frightened me no, more a kind of a sort of a, a slimy kind of creature made out of goo, like a swamp thing, I suppose. So you would get like a, these plastic badges in each little plastic coffin along with some sweets. And the sweets were like, the sweets were rubbish. The sweets were just a few little kind of sugary sort of lumps. Really. <laughs> they were a bit like in Dolly Mixtures, that sort of slightly hard one in Dolly Mixtures that's like a kind of a, it's almost like a cube shape. They were a bit like that, the sweets. But the sweets were by the by. I wasn't really interested in the sweets. I was absolutely obsessed with collecting the badges and the fact that they came in plastic coffins because I really loved anything kind of spooky or horror related at that time and I've never seen them anywhere before or since I did once find some pictures online of the badges and thought like oh yeah they're the badges I definitely recognize them but I don't know I think they might have been called spooky chews but I don't I might be making that up yeah I've not found anything about them at all you mentioned that people always say to you when you mention them oh yeah they were called bone shakers now bone shakers were different I remember them that was kind of like a, a swizzle skeleton jigsaw that you sort of put together but they weren't the same thing at all no no they weren't these and the sweets in those were like they were like bone shaped weren't they they were like little bone pieces like no they were not like that at all as I say the sweets were kind of by the by really it was the collecting element of the badges that I really liked and I, I remember not I remember buying them with my sort of holiday spending money every time we went to this it was probably like a spa or whatever on caravan park and buying sort of several of them kind of every single morning when my dad went to buy a paper and I would buy some of these and had lots of these badges and I think I also actually bought some as presents that I was supposed to kind of give to my friends as a little kind of holiday souvenir present when I got back from holiday but I just kept them because I like them so much I couldn't quite I couldn't quite bring myself to give them up and the badges these sort of badges were they were plastic and they were shaped like the figure itself and the artwork on them was very in the style of it was kind of cartoonish artwork so it was very much in the style of like maybe Monster Fun or Shiver and Shake or one of the sort of one of the kind of horror themed comics 
that were around at the time, which I also really liked. So I don't know who was responsible for the artwork, but I remember the artwork being quite good. I remember them being kind of quite good cartoons and the witch having like a big warty hooked nose. <laughs> so they were kind of funny, but also, you know, they were a little bit creepy. And I really, really liked anything like that. There is that whole strange thing of sweets and chocolates and so on that you only saw on holiday and that maybe other people only saw on holiday. I mean, one that I always remember is we used to go to Wales a lot on holiday when I was a kid. And in some Welsh towns, not all the ones we went to, they would have these chocolates called Boone which is sort of half dark chocolate on one side, and white chocolate on the other. And the mascot on it was a sort of jester. So he's probably coming along on Twitter in the minute to tell you that you're wrong to say women shouldn't be wolf whistled at with all the <laughs> hey nonny no language. <laughs> I'm sure those characters are scoffing their faces with boons. But these spooky chews, though, remind me of the sort of thing where, you know, when you go back to school in September and the kid in your year who was like, you know, kind of part French or part Italian or whatever, will be holding aloft some remnant of a sweet that you could only get in Europe. It would hold it aloft like a sacred relic and everyone would flock around them being jealous of this because I remember people having Bone Shaker before they were launched over here. I think they were called something else in Europe. Pez dispensers before you could get them over here and so on. They would be a momentary playground celebrity and I often wonder if the architects of Brexit were just fueled by continual resentment and jealousy over the fact that these other kids had these amazing sweets that they didn't have. Yeah and I always associated kids who would bring back sweets like that I always sort of thought they were really rich kids as well so like kids mm. that went abroad on holiday which we <laughs> never did I didn't go abroad on holiday until I was about 16 I think but yeah kids would bring back they often had like sweets in weird flavours as well so you would be handed a bag of sweets to choose from you would take a green one expecting it to be lime obviously and it would turn out to be sort of apple flavoured or melon or something really surprising that the colour coding of foreign sweets was always all wrong <laughs> and I would be sort of quite surprised by them. I do remember some people bringing back from... Now, whether they were bringing back from holidays abroad or just holidays in the UK where there were mysterious seaside sweets that were not available inland. But I do remember people bringing back these kind of boiled sweets that came in a really, really long strip. You know, like about a metre long. Oh, yes. And they yeah. were kind of attached. They were sort of attached to each other and you kind of took them out individually. Like a blister pack, yes. Yeah, exactly. Like a really, really long blister pack. They always seem to be cola flavoured, if I remember rightly. But yeah, I, what were they? I don't know where they came from. I've never seen them in a shop ever, but I've got a really clear memory of them, which is weird. They were definitely European. And like you say, they did look as though, probably as though they were more expensive than they actually were. Mm. It was all about the presentation with these things, wasn't it? and the actual sweets were kind of almost an afterthought. Yeah, it's, it's completely, it's just the novelty factor, isn't it? It's the gimmick of the presentation completely that made them exciting. They were just sort of fairly average cola-flavoured round boiled sweets, if I remember rightly. And also because they were in that long strip, there was the illusion that you were getting absolutely loads of sweets you weren't. You were probably getting exactly the same number as you would get in, you know, a packet of boiled sweets that you buy from a service station. But somehow it seemed like really impressive in their abundance because they were served in this very, very long blister pack, which was probably about a foot long, actually. But as a child, it seemed, you know, it seemed to be sort of six or seven feet. And also because they were, in quote marks, they were foreign faulty. Foreign, you know, that, yeah. To me, anything like that, anything from Europe, anything you would sometimes find in a relative's house, say, an astronaut, book actually in French or 
some other characters that you didn't know about. And I always thought, that looks amazing. I wonder what that says. Yeah. Or, you know, I was fascinated with people like Francois Hardy, you know, because you'd see French records in the Knox family and think, how did that get there? Yeah. I was fascinated by anything foreign, really, as a child. So I used to like dubbed foreign TV series, especially if they were Eastern European, because that always seemed a bit strange and otherworldly. I had a really weird, I got bought once as a present. It was just like a memory game, like pairs, basically. So cards with pictures on that you turn face down and have to find the pairs. But they were from, I think they were from like Hungary or somewhere like that, somewhere in Eastern Europe. So some of the pictures on them were quite weird and a bit odd and very sort of communist. So there would be like maybe a tractor or a smoking factory chimney or like, you know, a large cart loaded with potatoes or something like that. And I was always sort of quite fascinated by that kind of foreignness of them. Yeah, I liked anything like that. I used to like things that were different and a bit exotic as I perceived them to be. Spooky Jews, maybe they were imported. Maybe that's why I like them so much. Well, I think it's a compliment of two things there. I mean, because like I say, I've never understood the thing of feeling disdain for foreign culture because I always found it quite exciting. It makes me sad when people aren't interested in it. Like you say, things like the singing ringing tree, things like that really fascinated me as a oh, yeah. also that fascinated me. Again, well, the singing ringing tree is sort of halfway between these two. It's the idea that it used to be okay to introduce sort of elements of inverted commas classic horror to kids in a way that I think the problem became it wasn't anything to do with the stories or the characters. It was that people confused that with what you were allowed to show graphically to kids, mm. how much you were allowed to frighten them or disturb them. I think that's where they went wrong. I mean, you know, when I look back, stuff like this was all over the place. You know, you would have children's books about vampires and so on. It is not a new thing. It was seen as normal. And I remember Russell T. Davis saying once that he wanted to do a children's series where he took all the classic horror stories and went back to the actual story and made them suitable for children again because he felt that had been lost. For whatever reason, that didn't happen. And I find that really sad. See, I think that would be a brilliant idea. I mean, I love horror now and I always loved anything horror related and spooky when I was a child. And I do remember there was a real kind of horror thing going on in the sort of 70s and early 80s when I was a kid. You would get a lot of, you know, there were a lot of horror themed things. So you'd have like, there was the Dracula lolly, for example, kind of lots of things like that, that were quite a big deal, horror top trumps. You would also get a lot of kind of kids or sort of kid orientated books that were things like, like the Hamlin book of horror and things like that, that kind of thing. I had a paperback called Monsters of the, well, it was my brother's actually, but we had a paperback called Monsters of the Movies that was clearly aimed at kids, but just had sort of one page of text and one four page photo, which was always terrifying of a monster from an old horror film. And some of them were really obscure. I mean, you had like, you know, Lugosi as Dracula and Karloff as Frankenstein and things like that. But they also had a kind of moth creature from a film called The Blood Beast Terror. Oh, (laughs) yes. Yeah. And there was a picture of, I think it was Bela Lugosi when he was in The Island of Dr. Moreau and things like that. And that was clearly a book aimed at kids who probably weren't allowed to see any of those films. And there was the white zombie as well, Plague of Zombies, Hans of Orlac. He was a guy whose hands, he had a hand transplant and the hands were the hands of a murderer so that they started sort of strangling people on their own, obviously 
seriously. So there were lots of things like that that I was quite fascinated by. And I would be scared and it would occasionally give me nightmares probably. But I loved anything like that. I also had the Jan Pienkowski Haunted House pop-up book as well, which was very odd. But again, like clearly aimed at kids. And there were board games as well. Like there was the I Want to Bite Your Finger board game yes. that, um, where the ink always ran out. So you didn't quite get the little ink marks that were supposed to look like the vampire bit you. And there were lots of things like that around. And I assume that the spooky Jews were kind of cashing in on that, really. But I mean, I don't know. Kids still recognise, I guess, they still recognise kind of a Dracula or a Frankenstein or, well, a Frankenstein's monster, of course I should say, you know, or a werewolf. But there doesn't seem to be that same, it doesn't seem to be quite as pervasive and, I was going to say universal, but that would be a bit of a pun, wouldn't it? Um, (laughs) It doesn't seem to be as prevalent as it was when I was a kid. And there was also the allure of the fact that there was an extra level beyond what you were allowed to see that you weren't allowed to see. Yes, yeah. The story I always tell about that is I remember being fascinated by, I may have been about six, but in Radio Times, film of the week was something called, have you ever seen I Walked With a Zombie? Yes, yes, I've seen that. Uh, Well, I was both terrified by and fascinated by that thing, you know, just from the title and the photo of a woman with a shadow looming over her and thinking, what on earth is that? And then, as you're probably well aware, when I later saw it, it's basically the rewriter Jane Eyre with a bit of voodoo superstition thrown in for good measure and allegories about slavery and racism. It wasn't quite what I'd imagined it to be as a very spooked young child. I think there's something about the stills from films like that as well, black and white. They're always lit in a very, especially the really early horror films, more kind of German expressionist silent horror film. You see a still from Nosferatu or the cabinet of Dr. Cagliari and it's they're terrifying just because they're sort of got that really stark monochrome look to them that somehow makes them more frightening because they look different from things that you see on screen today I think and I was always whenever I saw anything like that as a child I was immediately drawn to it and fascinated by it well do you think just as a closing thought on all this was that why video nasties seem so compelling yet terrifying because you know you wouldn't see clips of them on the news for obvious reasons and you know most of them are more boring than anything yeah the fact that you just see this video with this terrifying cover never even still image of it it was a news camera pointed at it with no (laughs) movement but it was quite obvious it was you know real-time footage do you think that was a similar thing maybe i think although i'm a massive horror fan i've really got like those are not horror films that appeal to me at all and like you say they are just boring i'm not remotely squeamish in any way i can what you know i've got no squeamishness about gore at all and i just find it dull i'm not interested in that sort of torture porn genre really and it is boring i think if you watched a lot of those video nasties from the time now they would probably be quite not tame but certainly nothing overly shocking i wouldn't have thought but i do remember seeing sort of covers the covers of those vhs's in you know the local video shop and thinking god like that's that's horrific because <laughs> they would it would it would be a still of you know a cannibal holding a sort of handful of bloody flesh or something and it would just look like the worst most depraved thing you'd ever seen but actually when you see the film it's like eh, i mean that you know <laughs> it's not real is it it doesn't even look real you know there is i think there's an element of that i think you're drawn in by the still image and then it doesn't always live up to it when you see the whole film okay well let's take a sharp diversion into more wholesome territory for your next choice which is a slightly disturbing and frightening children's serial
Okay, that was the theme for The Strange Affair of Adelaide Harris, BBC 1979, based on a 1971 novel by Leon Garfield. Joe, why is this stuck in your memory? It has stuck in my memory because, well, one, I was really young when I saw it. So I must have been like three or four when I saw it. It was probably far too young. I found it really unnerving and frightening, partly because the premise of it is that two young boys, Bostock and Harris, I think they're called. I think they're about sort of 10, 10 or 11, maybe. They decide to kidnap Harris's baby sister, Adelaide, and sort of abandon her on a hillside to see if she will be raised by wolves. Not the Catelyn Moran sitcom. No, not the Catelyn Actually raised by wolves. Literally (laughs) raised by wolves. And of course she isn't, but she does disappear. And they realise that essentially they've abducted and lost a child, which is clearly a problem. But you're supposed to watch this and sort of think of them as two kind of incorrigible rascals, kind of naughty Just William style boys who have just got themselves into a bit of a scrape. But I remember watching this as a small child and thinking, no, you, you can't just leave a baby out on a hillside. It will die. <laughs> baby will die. Like you can't. What are you doing? It's a baby. I mean, like it was like it, it was. You know, if if this had been happening today, they'd have been sort of caught on CCTV and a grainy image leading the child away. It was just awful and it really unnerved me and that also the, the rest of the series if I remember correctly was them trying to get Adelaide back and at one point I think they take the baby or they think that Adelaide has been taken by some I think they're j- supposed to be gypsies but certainly poor people so they take a baby from them thinking it's Adelaide and it actually isn't Adelaide and I don't remember what happened to that baby so you know I, I, I hope they gave her back to its parents but I don't know and I think eventually they might have found Adelaide in some sort of horrible baby farm workhouse sort of place it was all really bleak and it always seemed to be like the weather always seemed to be terrible every time they were outside it always seemed to be like you know a bit overcast and damp and yeah, it upset me. It was very unnerving. I didn't like it. It really is. There's that whole thing about, you know, that in a weird contrast, while I think it's OK to, you know, within reason, expose kids to Dracula and Frankenstein and yeah. the mummy and so on. The whole Victoriana thing with the workhouses and the child labour, you know, just maltreatment of poor people in general. You know, I'm still a bit unnerved by talking about this series now. I would imagine <laughs> there's a certain politician who's kind of only a little bit older than both of us who I would imagine probably watched this at the time and thought what a jolly lark except he probably thought it in Latin (laughs) completely and also the uniforms of the school that that politician went to are not dissimilar to the clothes worn by the kids because it is that kind of either maybe it's kind of late Regency early Victorian but it's very much the kind of high-waisted trousers and top hats sort of period costume where small children are allowed to wear like walk around looking like they're going to ascot all the time yeah exactly it's like oh what what larks what fun well no you're like no you're, you've stolen a tiny baby and it's your sister as well like what are you doing you're, you know, this isn't this isn't okay this is gonna work out really badly and it also had that thing which always used to unnerve me as a child and sort of still does actually of things where the plot sort of hinges around something that sort of gradually escalates in a way that becomes kind of beyond control so a bit like the ladybird book piggly plays truant 
where he decides to play truant and at first it's all fun and games and then he gets into a rowing boat and sort of starts to drift out to sea and then can't get back it's that point where things sort of start to go quite wrong so at the beginning it's all like let's take baby Adelaide and leave her on a hillside but then she disappears and they realise that they're actually in a lot of trouble and that sort of things gradually spiralling out of control is really unnerving in itself and Leon Garfield wrote hundreds of these books in this setting for children as well which I cannot get my head around i would equate it to sven hassel you know that bloke that wrote all those books that you saw in charity shops called things like the eagle's fist where it had the cover of be a painting of a nazi officer slipping on the chessboard or something <laughs> yes. you know somebody locked in one not that pleasant genre i'm gonna level that accusation at the on carfield what what are you doing mate yeah because he wrote all the ones that were about like the victorian apprentices didn't he like smith who was a pickpocket i think and of course the december rose which you and i have spoken about before which involved a child chimney sweep and it was always quite dark quite grubby fog barefoot children sitting in gutters just really very dark and very gritty and grubby and it was like the other one that always makes me think of not leon garfield of course but the film of the 70s film of the water babies the opening scenes of that are terrifying really terrifying involving the the sort of child chimney sweep running through a market where there's a guy who's got a tray who's selling pigs heads and there's a a sort of a a woman a a sort of a desperately destitute woman sitting in an alleyway breastfeeding a child while begging and things like that and you know this is like supposed to be a magical a magical caper for children (laughs) and it's really frightening really frightening and really dark and almost like a sort of victorian like kind of dystopian feel to it almost well there was a different kind of dystopia on offer just in case you managed to avoid all the victorian set british made children's dramas which is the dubbed imported serials which we talked about earlier it's one called the white stone that you've got very strong memories of yeah i think it was a film rather than a series the white stone although i might be remembering that wrong because again i was really small and yeah it was really odd it was based on a children's book which i think is swedish and the plot revolves around two children a girl and a boy who become friends and they sort of embark upon a kind of series of of dares that they kind of set each other and they swap the white stone between them it's a sort of a nice white pebble that one of them's found and they swap that between them and each one has to do a different dare to sort of get the white stone back because if I remember correctly but again it very much had that thing of things sort of gradually spiraling out of control so the dares that they set each other become increasingly risky and at one point I, there's there's one that involves doing something to a judge's house the sort of local judge and he's quite a formidable man and quite sinister and they then have a sort of nightmare about him flapping his robes at them like a kind of giant scary crow and it all just becomes really unsettling and unnerving and it because as I was as we were saying before because it was foreign so I think the book is Swedish so I assume the film was also Swedish and dubbed it had a sort of otherworldly feel to it as if it was happening in a maybe a sort of like almost like a dream world again I found that sort of unnerving and I wanted to say to them like just stop just stop doing this it's, <laughs> it's only going to get worse and it, it had also I think it was quite bittersweet as well because I think the kids came from quite different social backgrounds but they were both sort of misfits in their own way I think and they'd kind of bonded because they were lonely which again had a sort of a real kind of melancholy undertone to it and it's it stuck with me for years and I've never found anyone else that's seen it although I did I, I think someone I have met someone who read the book I think but I've never met anyone else that's seen the film and certainly nobody else that has been haunted by it for the, the 
next 40 years as I have been. Well, no, I don't remember it at all. You know, I used to love all the dubbed serials. Apparently it was shown by ITV a couple of times in the late 70s, which may be why. Do you normally associate those dubbed shows with the BBC, really? You didn't get that many of them on ITV. I did some looking into it, and apparently, I don't know if it's the same in the televised version, but in the book, the dares are all started by... Now, this struck so much of a chord with me, because this is an analogy you make about Boris Johnson quite often. There's a boy <laughs> just turns up one summer day, and that's where the dares start from, because he kind of provokes that. And, you know, it is the... Boris Johnson is that kid who nobody knew, who'd always turn up one day in the summer holidays, persuade you all to do something that got you into serious trouble, laugh when you got told off about it, and then disappear. And, you know, which sounds funny, but I can remember things like... I know, yeah, I wasn't actually involved in this, but one of my friends ended up... She fell on the railings outside the library and, you know, had to be taken to hospital because she had some railings stuck inside. It all started because of this kid that nobody knew. And I, I was about to say, I'm not saying our Prime Minister's as bad as that, but yeah, yeah. My equivalent of that story is that there was a kid on... So I grew up on, like, a, a modern sort of 1960s sort of suburban housing estate in a cul-de-sac. There was a sort of a, a row of cul-de-sacs that came off the sort of main road. There was a kid who lived on the next cul-de-sac who was gullible I would say among other things she was in my year at school she somehow was persuaded to lie down at the end of a ramp so that a boy could jump over her on his BMX bike with horrific consequences because he caught her head and she ended up having about 15 stitches and that was a bit like that because I don't because that he didn't live like on our estate we didn't really know I mean we knew who he was but we didn't know how he'd kind of wandered over to our side of town and he'd somehow persuaded her to sort of take part in this kind of BMX slash evil can evil stunt which he was in no way equipped to execute properly and she didn't even get a white stone as a reward for it no she didn't even she didn't even get a pebble <laughs> hopeless but yeah I think if I remember correctly the kid that sort of turns up is sort of supposed to be kind of a bit from the wrong side of the tracks or he's a bit of an outcast or that might just be my interpretation of it looking back as how I viewed it as a child but yeah it is that sort of that is the other odd element to it is that someone just appearing and creating chaos which is also always a little bit unnerving a bit like a sort of a much more melancholy low-key version of the cat in the hat I suppose well I've literally just looked up now I found the cast list for the TV version and I've looked up the child actor who played that boy you will never guess what he looks like has he got like a blonde pudding bowl haircut he's got that Jimmy Savile ice cream mop of hair yes yes yeah, it's it's yeah it's the Scandinavian thing white blonde hair yeah and because it was the 70s as well exactly that hairstyle that is that's unsettling isn't it properly unnerving that the only other thing that I would add is that the other dubbed thing that I remember watching on ITV was Silas which loads of people will remember which hop channels nobody remembers that because it ended up on the BBC channel? as well yes ah, yeah interesting interesting yeah that was very bleak and grubby as well and like a lot of child cruelty in it as well I remember people being beaten by ringmasters of circuses and being hounded through villages for stealing a potato and that kind of thing it was very much that sort of vibe to it and the main antagonist an old woman called the shrew took a rich girl and just put her in the back of like a trolley with yes. bars on it it was dragging yeah, her off yeah, in it and Silas was du dubbed Silas <laughs> going hey come back and this mate of like Nicholas Lindhurst was saying yes come back literally kept a child in a cage yeah they must have were they cheap they must have been cheap mustn't they never mind the quality feel the wit okay well let's get well, actually, we're not getting that far away from that at all, because there's an element of all of this in your next choice, which, amazingly, I've managed to find an advert for. Kung Fu Adventure Story. 
hook travels to the Orient. And there, in addition to his skill with a sword and bow and arrow, he becomes a Kung Fu champion. The story in all this stuff is in the Kung Fu adventure set. Hook is sold separately. Confucius say, lots of fun. The Fighting Series Kung Fu Warrior Adventure Set. Okay, that was an advert for Matchbox Fighting Furies. Three words that I've forgotten went together until just now. Joe, what were they? Matchbox Fighting Furies were kind of, I suppose, action figures of a sort. So they were plastic figures aimed very much at boys, I think. But the ones we had were actually my brothers and I used to play with them. They were kind of action figures. The ones we had were pirates. I think they were probably all pirates, but the ones we had were pirates. But they were quite, they were very sort of detailed. They had clothes that you could take on and off so you could dress and undress them and they had little accessories with them and they also had a little kind of button around I suppose it was sort of on their sort of rib cage that if you pressed they would start um, sort of thrashing their arms about wildly which was so, so you were essentially you were supposed to be able to have a fight with two of them so you would sort of stand them opposite each other and kind of squeeze this button on their side and they would I mean they were supposed to punch each other or like sort of slash each other with swords but what actually happened was that they would just kind of flap their arms about in a really kind of slightly panicked camp kind of way like a couple of girls having a fight in a nightclub it was very it was really they should reboot really them with that as the theme yeah they completely should they completely should they should have one holding a, a stiletto shoe that she's just taken off to clout someone with instead of a cutlass the two that we had and I've never seen any others so I only know the two that we had one of them was a sort of a peg-legged pirate who he had looked a bit like Burt Reynolds he had a kind of suspiciously modern hair and moustache but also a peg leg hidden inside his peg leg and this is where the sort of the this was the kind of the good thing about them is that they were quite detailed hidden inside his peg leg was like a little treasure map so you could unscrew his peg leg and there was a tiny little curled up piece of paper hidden inside it that was his treasure map so there was him and the other one was the other one in retrospect might have been a bit racist I was a, he had a kind of a sort of East Asian look to him, shall we say, and he was completely bald except for a, a sort of a kind of a top knot ponytail that was sort of came right from the middle of the top of his head. And he was kind of shirtless and quite like had a quite an angry expression and was quite frightening. I think he had a hook hand. I think that was it. he'd been maimed in that way. So because you can't have a pirate that's had nothing amputated, can you? So <laughs> he had a missing hand, I think he had a hook hand and the other one had a peg leg and they were quite formidable. And yeah, but you couldn't really do anything with them except have really kind of strange, frantic, flappy armed fights with them. Well, there do seem to have been other varieties of them. I mean, surprisingly for the 70s, there were no Nazis, but there were different kinds of historical soldiers. There were Kung Fu variants, which, you know, is a very 70s thing, but also ghosts. Oh, what use would they be in the Fighting Fury situation? (laughs) Oh no, my hook arm has gone right through it. (laughs) See, I, I'm gutted that I never had any ghost ones. That would have been my dream toy when I was a child. <laughs> like a Fighting Furies ghost. But as you say, ghosts are not really known for fisticuffs, are they? No. <laughs> not, not really known for brawling. That's not really the sort of... It's not really the modus operandi of your average ghoul, is it? And also, they must have been armed with a ball and chain. Because, you know, there is that thing about... Ghosts always had that kind of old-fashioned gear on. Yeah, or a head, a removable head that tucked under the arm, yeah. I'd like to imagine. Like they stopped making them in the 17th century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no modern ghosts. <laughs> There's no modern ghosts, but also there are no really old ghosts. So you never get like a ghost of, of a Neolithic tribesman, do you? 
it's always it's kind of I would say maybe Roman Centurion upwards I would say for ghosts but I wonder if there were other varieties of them because again that was quite a 70s kids entertainment thing mainly in comics for boys and so on where you would have combatants and throughout history matched against each other not ghosts normally but you know that <laughs> yeah. kind of thing of I don't know it'd be in the Hotspur or something there'd be some story where somehow somebody had gone to this big arena where they'd been plucked from history to fight against say an Egyptian with a big headset on and carrying a hard or something <laughs> yeah it does kind of tap into that i also remember pirates in the 70s were kind of much better than pirates now as well i think i like to me a pirate is not johnny depp in some eyeliner it's robert newton sort of rolling his eyes a lot and having a peg leg and talking in a really strong west country accent that's a proper pirate i don't want glamorous pirates i want them to be really properly piratey like someone that would actually have been on the high seas in the late 1700s that's what i want a pirate to look like and these were that kind of pirate i would say apart from the fact that one of them did look a bit like burt reynolds they were that kind of pirate and the the foreign pirate with the hook hand he was very much of the kind of if you saw a film involving pirates from that sort of time from the kind of i suppose from the sort of 50, 40s 50s 60s you would often have a kind of exotic pirate who would be pitted against your hero pirate who would be maybe sort of moroccan he'd be sort of a moor or he would be siamese or from some other country that doesn't exist anymore and it would normally have big gold earrings and a curved sword to distinguish him from the straight sword of your british pirates well i was about to ask when you think pirates jumped the shark but most of them look like they didn't very successfully jump a shark and lost an arm on the way. Yeah, that's what happened to them. It's fascinating now about all these companies. Like, I mean, we've had Matchbox Toys chosen on here before. That you know, there were all these usually British-based companies that made all kinds of toys that were a really solid idea, a really good product line, quite varied as well. They were a household name for years and years, and then they just don't seem to have been able to cope when you know, in the eighties, when the whole powerhouse rolled out of means. Well, starting with things like Masters of the Universe, I think. Star Wars by accident probably started it, but where you'd have the weight of, you know, a TV series and films and all kinds of cross-media promotion behind these toys, which sometimes even interacted with the other iterations in some way. And then you'd have poor old, you know, Fighting Furies going, we're still over here. Where's our cheaply made cartoon? Yeah, for me, it was a bit of a sad day when cartoons started to be made pretty much to promote a toy line rather than the other way around, I guess. The other thing I think with things like Fighting Furies is like, we only had the two and the pirates, but now I know that there were ghosts and stuff as well well it's that sort of collectible element isn't it i like the idea of there being lots of different versions of a thing that was always something that appealed to me a lot when i was a child lots of iterations on essentially the same thing but sort of varied enough to be interesting like you know i could happily have although we only had the two i could happily have had hundreds of fighting furies like lined up on a shelf i thought they were brilliant i loved them at the time although the sort of the small parts like the map and the hook and the things that sort of and their clothes were very easily lost i have to say they were the sort of toy that kind of by the time I was sort of playing with them because they were originally my brothers by the time I was playing with them I think there were some bits missing I mean other than the leg and the hand which were meant to be missing there were some accessories missing and things I think but yeah I thought they were great and I'm inexplicably not still going okay we're moving on to your next choice now which is really about as far removed from that aesthetic as you can get because it's two game shows that were more or less contemporaneous to each other but were essentially poles apart What have you got inside that cage? That is a killer. 
ridiculous he's only two inches high that may be so but that lad could strip a full-grown sheep to the bone in 30 seconds flat what are you talking about he hasn't even touched his minutes okay that was a clip of don mclean from crackerjack talking over the top of the university challenge theme because i couldn't get clips of either of these shows <laughs> amazingly nobody thought to record them joe which two game shows are we talking about here we're talking about two game shows which i'm not surprised you could not get clips of because one of them is don mclean's mouth trap and the other is Bamba Gascoigne's connoisseur so I mean you know we've already got Don McLean and Bamba Gascoigne who I would place at the opposite ends of the entertainment spectrum very much <laughs> so mouth trap whenever I think of mouth trap it's like a fever dream almost to the point where I did once I did have to check with my brother that it was a real thing because he also remembers it it was a daytime I think game show presented by Cracker Jack's Don McLean whose look my brother is <laughs> described as when we were discussing this he said he was always dressed like a 70s coach driver <laughs> The mouth element was basically just seemed to be prompted by the fact that Don McLean has got quite a big gob, basically. <laughs> so he was introduced as it's the man with the mouth. I was like, everyone's got a mouth. What? <laughs> it was introduced as if he was you would think he was the only man ever to have had a mouth. And on the set, they had a great big sort of giant mouth from which Don and the contestants would emerge and go in and out of a horrible, grotesque, kind of red-lipped, gaping mouth. Everything was very garish, very colourful. The premise of this game show, the format, was that you would have celebrities, I mean, I say celebrities, loosely based on celebrity, I guess, very much the bottom end of the celebrity scale. So you would have celebrities and members of the public, I suppose in the style of the Blankety Blank Supermatch game, where they would have to work together to win the member of the public a prize. The only round I can actually remember was a round where it was kind of like a cross between Family Fortunes and that bit on Whose Line Is It Anyway, where they had to do something with a prop. One contestant would be given an object. I don't know. It might be a sieve or a baseball bat or I don't know, you know, a, a shovel or something. And they had to list as many possible uses for it as they could. The other contestant would then have to come back out and try and also do the same thing thing but they would have to get the same ones or maybe they had to get different ones something along those lines anyway it essentially was two people normally people that weren't very bright trying to think of things to do with a dull household object Despite this being the easiest thing in the world to do, they were always terrible. They would always panic. <laughs> the one I particularly remember, and in fact, this is the bit my brother remembers as well. The object was a plunger, like, you know, like a sink plunger. That in itself is a bit depressing, isn't it? It makes me think of blocked sinks and toilets and things. I mean, that in itself is sort of choddy and tawdry. And the member of the public, all she could come up with, I mean, she didn't even, I don't even remember her saying, unblock a sink with it. She was saying, um, uh, you could use it as a, you could use it as a shovel well I mean you couldn't really but okay and then the next one she came up with was picking up bald men by the head that was what she thought you could do with a plunger picking up bald men by the head that is indicative of the quality of that show and of the kind of contestant that they would have on it it was just awful like painfully bad and it also I think because it was on during the day as I remember I probably only ever saw it when I was ill because I would have been off sick 
So I probably, so it's probably in my head, it's probably kind of conflated with having, being a bit feverish or feeling a bit queasy. And it was the last thing you wanted to watch if you were feeling either of those things, I've got to say. Well, I'm not surprised to hear the suggestions of that bug, because, you know, you likened it to the props around the Who's Line anyway, which they were already scraping the bottom of the barrel with that, because after a couple of good jokes, you then get, you know, it was always Colin Mockery and Ryan Stiles would say, it's worse than that, Doctor, he's got a sieve on his head. (laughs) They've got out very quickly, so expecting (laughs) members of the public to come up with anything sensible is a non-starter, really. But I don't remember this at all, but I always had to think about, because this apparently was about 1986 to 7 on ITV, and ITV daytime game shows always fascinated me because it was like it always seemed like they'd had an idea and that was enough they didn't need to think of a format they didn't even need to have a set really there were things like obviously you know given the title of this I was always fascinated with Looks Familiar where people just come on and remember things there was <laughs> Who's Baby which I'm surprised nobody has picked for this where oh, there would always be a photo I of Who's Baby so, yeah. yeah and it'd be like Bernard Manning and Roy Hall to be going oh oh it, I, I kind of know the fella, but I, I don't know who it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. It's Tommy Trinder. <laughs> and that's my dog, which is basically just <laughs> it was a celebrity's dog. <laughs> desperation. And there was also, like, later on there was Win, Lose or Draw, which was just Pictionary. Although I used to quite like Win, Lose or Draw, actually, particularly when Bob Mills presented it, involving, like, Linda Robson and Pauline Quirk, like, kneeling down, watching a member of the public just scribble really badly on a flip chart for half an hour. That was literally it. Mouthtrap, I don't know whether it was a nationwide thing or whether it might have just been Thames region, because that's where I grew up. So it might have just been a London Thames thing. Or it might even have been Anglia, because, oddly, although we lived in Thames region, the telly I had in my bedroom, I could sometimes pick up Anglia. Or I could sometimes get a better picture on Anglia than I could for Thames, which is weird, because <laughs> you didn't live in Anglia. So occasionally I would see sort of odd things in, on telly in my bedroom that you didn't see downstairs. So if I watched it while I was sick, it might have been Anglia, but it might have been it might have been Thames or it might have been Anglia. It might not have been a national thing. And, I, you know, in many ways, I hope it wasn't, because I wouldn't wish that on anyone. And Don McLean's quite an interesting figure anyway, because he's one of those people that seems to have a very, very long career while just being reasonably good at what he did. Now, I'll have the caveat that I remember laughing hysterically on Cracker Jack when I was a kid, when he was team with Peter Glaze. And you get those bits where it's always like you come out and go, McLean! Yes, I had a bath this morning. McLean, why is that man with the trumpet drawing pictures of a bird standing on one leg? Why is that man with the trumpet drawing pictures of a bird standing on one leg? Oh, that's Miles Davis. There is <laughs> Get It Flamingo sketches. And they also did Silent Shorts called Don and Pete, which I remember parties stopping for so that everyone could watch Don and Pete. So he was popular with children, but all the other stuff, like his Radio 2 presenting, his game show presenting and so on, he was somebody who was good at doing it without being in any way, I use this in the distinctive sense, outstanding. Yeah, not remotely outstanding. He reminds me a bit of someone who would be comparing the cabaret show at a holiday camp. He's that kind of, or who might be, I suppose because of the Cracker Jack thing, he reminded me a bit of when I was at primary school, sometimes at the end of the year for our sort of Christmas party, we would have like a children's entertainer would come in and do some magic and stuff. And they were always like, they were always like old granddads. They were always like, (laughs) they were were never like young people. They were always old and they were normally called uncle something as well. I remember there was one called Uncle Dennis who used to do, who used to pull rabbits out of hats and stuff. And they were often a bit of that ilk of the Don McLean ilk. So Don McLean for me feels like someone who was, he'd kind of just sort of accidentally stepped out of his lane, I would say. (laughs) 
<laughs> and was just sort of having it, you know, just sort of, he was, he was all right at what he did, but he wasn't really quite up there. Um, he was sort of inexplicably someone who had been promoted above his pay grade, I would say. I had a magician at my birthday party once who there was some sort of thing where he would put loads of really unpleasant things into a bowl and then inexplicably, you know, like some toothpaste and stuff. And then inexplicably, an amazing sponge cake would be produced. <laughs> now, I still don't know how that was done. And it was quite impressive. But that's um, I was like, oh, you never see Paul Daniels whipping up a birthday cake for anyone, do you? Well, if you want to know how it's done, you could ask somebody really knowledgeable and scientific and erudite, like, say, <laughs> Bamba Gascoigne. Yes, yes. So Bamba Gascoigne's show, which, as you said, was on probably on around the same time as Mouthtrap, could not have been more different from that in that it was possibly the most difficult and erudite game show well, game show quiz show I've ever seen and I think it only ran for, I think it only ran for one series I think it was a quiz show that was sort of arts based so arts antiques that kind of thing and the questions were just so unbelievably difficult <laughs> that me and my dad used to watch it every week my dad liked it like so we had a really like you know dead normal household we probably had a few kind of coffee table books about art knocking around you know like, like we get taken to museums and, and galleries and things sometimes and stuff like that so we used to you know quite interested in that kind of thing however we would watch it and me and my dad would sit there every week and just be like haven't got a clue <laughs> No idea. <laughs> Absolutely no idea. There was one round, I remember, where the contestants would be shown, and the contestants were exactly the kind of people you would imagine they would be. Can I just ask, because I've not been able to determine, were they real people, or was it people from the arts world? Was it Brian Sewell and the Antiques Boy? Because I would love no. to see that if that <laughs> no. happened. no. They were real people. They were real people. I think they were real people anyway. But I think most of them were probably, you know, maybe people that worked in the world of art or antiques or classical music or that sort of thing. They weren't just like, they weren't normal people. (laughs) (laughs) They weren't anyone that I would ever have met, basically. And one of the regular rounds was that they would be shown like a tiny section of a painting and they would have to name either the painting or the artist, I think. That's a catchphrase. Yeah, much like that. Very much like that. So it'd be like, here's a tiny section. What painting is Mr. Chip showing you today? (laughs) It was a, a tiny section of a painting. And quite often when it was revealed, me and my dad would be like, have you ever seen that painting? No. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the artist? No. <laughs> we, we just didn't stand a chance. When I looked this programme up online, I think the only thing I found was like an old Radio Times listing where it said something like, do you know your money from your money? And I was like, no. That, <laughs> yes, I do know my money from my money, but that would not have been a question on Connoisseur because that would have been much too easy for Connoisseur. So I think they drew people in by sort of, um, by kind of leading them to believe that if you sort of had been to the National Gallery once or you once went to the Tate, you might be in with a chance of answering a couple of questions. But actually, no, no normal person stood any chance of getting any of the questions right. Honestly, it was incredibly difficult. That's the main thing I remember about it. And my mum would get increasingly annoyed each week that my dad insisted on tuning in because she just found the whole experience (laughs) frustrating because we couldn't answer any questions. There is that thing about, I mean, there are highbrow quiz shows, you know, there's things like Only Connect and so on, but there is a point beyond that where it's ridiculous and you think who is this for the ones that i remember things like there was vintage quiz on itv which despite being presented by somebody we don't talk about now you know it was again like what is this antique where would you have seen it well I don't know. There's something called Cabbages and Kings where I just used to watch it and think, who is this for? And 
the one that still haunts me to this day, it might even still be going, I don't know, I don't care, is quote unquote, where oh, I would hear bits of it as a child and there always be, Humphrey Burton, Humphrey, what have you got for us? They say, oh, oh, well, the boy stood on the burning deck and they'd all fall about laughing. It's like, <laughs> what, what are you talking about? Why are you doing this? Yeah, and the other one that I always think of in the same bracket as quote unquote was um, Counterpoint. Oh, yes. Um, but it probably would be where I thought it would be. But it's now presented by Paul Gambaccini, isn't it? And I think there are some kind of questions about, occasionally some questions about modern music on it. But what I remember of Counterpoint was that I, I would stand no chance and the contestants would be referred to as Mr. Smith and Mrs. Jones rather than by their first name. <laughs> as if, yeah, really, absolutely dreadful. Like you say, who was it for? It was on BBC Two, I think. I suppose now it would have been on BBC Four in the same way that Only Connect was on BBC Four. But I think the thing with Only Connect is that the subjects of the questions, sometimes they're incredibly obscure and incredibly difficult. Like, for example, the maths questions on Only Connect, I'd never stand a chance at. But then sometimes, you know, there'll be a question about the lyrics to a really popular song or whatever. Not so with Connoisseur. <laughs> it was very much, I mean, I doubt they'd ever had a music question on, because I think there were music questions, like classical music questions, but I don't think there would ever have been any music on Connoisseur that was post about 1910, I would say. And ironically, for something that was all about telling you that you knew what these old things in the past were and you remembered them whether you liked them or not, it's been completely wiped from history to the extent that it's not even mentioned on Bamba Gascoigne's Wikipedia page. No, I noticed that. Although what I did notice from that was that Bamba Gascoigne had an ancestor whose name was Crisp Gascoigne. <laughs> Did he invent crisps? Yeah, was he he the inventor of crisps? Crisp, crisp Gascoigne. I mean, that's really... That's really odd, isn't it? Going off on a bit of a tangent there. It sounds more like Gaza advertising walkers in the early 90s or something, (laughs) when you would allow him near one of your products. But yeah, no, it's not mentioned on Gascoigne's Wikipedia page, which did make me think for a bit that I had dreamt it until I did find an old, just like an old Radio Times listing for it. And that's the only thing, that's the only record of it that I can find, which is weird in itself. Well, if we were going to find any mention of it anywhere, I think it would be your next choice, which there wasn't really a click with use for this. So here's something that I was associated with it, even though they weren't really related. ITV's The World of Survival, which I've put here to represent World Magazine. Joe, what was this? World Magazine was, and again, this choice says so much about the kind of child that I was. It was the children's version of National Geographic. So National Geographic published a children's magazine that was also monthly with sort of similar things that you would get in National Geographic, I suppose, but child friendly. And I had a subscription to it that was bought for me. I think my dad set up the subscription. My dad used to read National Geographic and I think there was an offer in there for the subscription. So I got this subscription to World magazine and it was very exciting because it was sent from America. So every month, a sort of a big brown envelope would pop through the letterbox with American postage on it. And I sort of would be very excited. But it was an odd thing. It, 
I mean, it was very much for the sort of for kind of nerdy kids, I suppose. So it had a mix in it of like kind of nature stories, science stories, kind of geography things, a bit of history, arts, that sort of thing. But it was, despite being called World, it was very US centric. <laughs> so much like the World Series in baseball, it was a thing called World that was very much from an American perspective because it was an American magazine, I suppose. There was probably a disproportionate number of stories about things in America. I remember there was a feature in it once about an annual Tom Sawyer festival that happens in Missouri every year where all the kids dress up as either Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn and have like frog races and <clears throat> painting competitions and there were these pictures of all these American kids in like straw hats and bare feet which seemed incredibly kind of exotic and strange to me I also remember there being a story in it about gorillas that were being taught sign language and one of them had been given a kitten as a pet which I remember thinking I'm not sure that's right. I'm not sure you should be giving cats to gorillas, should you? There was once a story about, well, they once had a competition in World Magazine where kids could design a gargoyle for a church that was being rebuilt somewhere. And I remember being very annoyed that one of the entries, one of the winning entries was just a picture of Darth Vader that a kid had drawn. And I was like, well, it's a good drawing, but it's that's Darth Vader. You've not made that up yourself. There was also a story once about an exchange trip between an American child and a Russian child, which at the time was a huge deal because it was kind of the sort of early 80s Cold War period and there was a you know a big sort of story about what an amazing kind of peace initiative this was although I do remember one of the children being given a puppy as a souvenir of the trip which I sort of thought like again I don't think you should just be giving no. people it's like you know that's not how you do pets but because it was very American centric often they would be talking about things that were very strange to me and that I didn't really know what they were talking about so I remember once there was a quiz in it that had very very close up pictures of things and you had to try and guess what they were from this kind of very close up sort of macro image one of them I was like well that looks like that looks like Smarties to me I'll put Smarties but then the answer was Reese's Pieces and I was like what the hell are Reese's Pieces I don't know what these are what are you talking about <laughs> well there would be sort of a recipe that would be like take a pack of Jolly Ranchers like what what are these I don't know what, I don't know what you mean I don't know what you mean so there was that there was that kind of weird thing in it of it being not only about interesting and exotic things that were going on around the world but also the very Americanness of it felt quite exotic to me well I do remember it but I remember it more that they did world atlases that were always in the school library and always the kids who won book tokens in school <laughs> by doing you know something that was in no way creative was just you know it had technical skills but nothing else they were always the ones that won not the ones that did anything <laughs> funny or interesting yeah. they would always use their book tokens <laughs> <laughs> world well world world atlases well that's a bit of a mouthful isn't it but yeah there did seem to be that weird thing because the one i i no idea how this came about and nobody can remember how it came about but when i was about seven i briefly had a subscription to rail riders the british rail magazine <laughs> I don't understand why I had no interest in trains at all. And you'd read it and it'd be full of features on a boy who got to drive a steam train and, you know, really unfunny comic strips. And there'd always be all these features about, well done to so-and-so who spotted this very rare 1950s bin at... <laughs> 
Stafford Station or whatever. And that'd be the, the railway to me was the station at the end of the road that, you know, was covered in sort of post-punk graffiti, punk's not dead stuff and telling the National Front where to go and things like that. Really dilapidated, really run down, even though the station had been closed by beaching and only reopened in 1979. <laughs> which you get on and you go to Liverpool Central, which is even more depressing. It sounded like, you know, we had all those early 80s Liverpool synth bands with that really sort of doomy, ominous kind of tone to them. Yeah. I'm convinced they were just making music based on what they felt when they got into Liverpool Central. And <laughs> British Rail as well, their magazine was on bloody time. Nothing else they did ever was. <laughs> But I used to read and think, who actually wants this? It's not got Spider-Man in it, was my biggest problem. But World seems to have been... I don't know, I might have found that a bit more interesting, except for the fact it sounds like it was about five years out of date. That was the other thing about it, in that even though it was a contemporary thing, it always felt like something a bit older. It always felt a little bit like something from another era, even though it wasn't. And it did have kind of... It did have sort of science and technology stories in it that were, you know, really contemporary. But it still felt... There was something about it that just felt a bit out of date which I quite liked because I was an odd kid and I kind of quite liked that sort of feel to it but yeah the kinds of stories that it had in it as well but sometimes I just there was often a quite a jarring disconnect between the types of stories in it as well so you would have a story about people that had created a sentient robot or something and then the next story would be you know the Tom Sawyer festival in Missouri kind of thing and I always sort of felt a bit odd I remember there was one about a kid a disabled boy who used a wheelchair and he had an assistance dog a gold retriever that was and there were lots of pictures of him going about his day and going to school assisted by this golden retriever and I was thinking oh if I was disabled would I be able to have like a dog like that (laughs) it just sort of made being disabled look like something that I might aspire to one day He had a little, like, the the dog had a little, had like a little backpack thing that car- that he carried the boys' school books and stuff in to get on their yellow American school bus, because obviously he was American. There was one about killer whales once. I think there was a cover with killer whales on it. But I think that was actually about the training of whales in SeaWorld, which was presented then as a sort of a good thing rather than the worst thing ever. So, yeah, it's got a lot to answer for. That sort of slightly outdated educational American thing also reminds me a lot of something that we did at my school my primary school called the SRA reading lab which in a way I kind of think maybe it was there just sort of to keep some kids quiet so the teacher didn't actually have to teach them anything for a bit because what it was was a kind of a really big sort of box full of indexed cards that were about A4 size kind of folded A4 you would go and collect one of these cards and it, you would then have a paper form that went with it and you would fill in the answers so it was it was like reading comprehension really and there would sometimes be some sort of grammar kind of questions that you would do on the back as well and then once you'd filled it in you would go and get the answer card mark your answers and then take your score to your teacher who would then tell you whether you had to stay on that level or whether you could move up to the next level so it was all really regimented and very like really structured the most structured learning thing ever really and also the levels were color-coded but they weren't just like red yellow green they had amazing names like the sort of names you used to get on a massive set of Crayola crayons so it would be like um, oh yeah you can move up to Vermilion now okay so well, you've, you've scored well on Vermilion so now you can move up to Aquamarine and there also it came with a set of special colored pencils that corresponded to the levels so you could fill in a chart in the correct colour and the SRA pencils would sometimes sort of accidentally make their way into the normal colouring pencils and we'd all get told off for mixing them up <laughs> because the SRA pencils were like right that's an SRA pencil put that back 
they were probably really expensive. But they were much they were nice pencils. They were really nice pencils. But that was also very American centric, including like spellings, which is not that great if you're teaching British children to read and spell if you know they're spelling colour without the U all the time and there will be things in so, so the reading comprehension element there will be like sort of a passage of text that you would read normally with a very kind of outdated 1950s looking picture and a very kind of retro mid-century font but often there will be references that you know it'll be about things like Thanksgiving or uh, the Pledge of Allegiance <laughs> you know or it'll be something like you know like an extract from a Washington Irving story <laughs> or something like that so it would always be it would often be things that or it would be you know sometimes they'll be sort of very domestic but it would involve you know it would mention making a bologna sandwich for lunch and we never had a, we didn't know what these things were <laughs> so it always felt really again it always felt kind of odd and a bit sort of exotic and wrong and a bit strange i quite liked sra i quite liked doing an sra card it was one of those things where kids would groan when the teacher said right go and everyone go and do an sra card and i'd be like oh brilliant sra i used to really like it isn't that an interesting inverse to though what we were saying about the european stuff so exotic because it just existed in its own world you were being invited to look into that with american things i just assumed that everyone around the world knew about you know tootsie rolls and reese's pieces and so on and the pledge of allegiance and that's just very american isn't it because I, I can remember things like i remember getting a big massive joke book you know one of those things with a billion jokes in as peter sander yeah. in the witch once put it where all the jokes were about things like fort knox and dental <laughs> plans and so on I was like, what what are these i don't understand and there was some like book of pranks and games where again you know we didn't have a touchtone phone nobody did over here at that point and there was something about if you pressed all these buttons in a certain order it said you might recognize this as the start of the yellow rose of texas sorry i wouldn't recognize that even if i heard it it is quite an american thing just to assume global familiarity well a good example of that is and you're absolutely right it is that assumption that so like with with the european things we were being invited to to sort of to look in whereas with the american things it was just being like thrust upon us whether we wanted it or not there's an example of that i was talking to someone a while ago an american about harry potter books and she was saying that the american editions that she read have changed a lot of the words so that american children understand them so they would change like bin to trash can and things like that or dumpster and i was thinking well when i was a kid and i used to read like judy bloom and betsy byers and and Beverly Cleary and all those American children's writers, none of the words were changed. So <laughs> yeah. It was just assumed that I'd be able to work it out. So I remember when I, I actually went to see Judy Bloom talking at Manchester Central Library a few years ago. And she said, oh, she said, whenever I come to England and we talk, said, I always get people coming up to me asking me what certain things are. <laughs> <laughs> because she said there was once where there was a reference to, I think, saddle shoes. And people going, like, like Judy, like, I've been wanting to ask you this. Like, what the hell is a saddle shoe? <laughs> Which is apparently it's like some sort of style of shoe that American kids often wore in like the 60s and 70s or something. Island Punch was another one that used to crop up in Judy Bloom books, which is some sort of soft drink, apparently. And also things would always be in the wrong flavours in American books. So they're sort of like grape flavour things. Like, what? You don't, they aren't grape. The only grape flavoured thing in this country is wine. You don't get like, <laughs> you don't get like a grape flavour popsicle. I don't know what you're talking about. And I would always be really baffled by it. But yeah, it was just assumed that we would understand what those things were, I suppose. Unlike you say, it didn't work the same way the other way round because the one I always point to was there were American versions of the 70s Doctor Who novels where they did things like they changed jelly babies to jelly beans and so uh-huh. on and the other notable thing about them was they had introductions written by a clearly drunk Harlan Ellison who <laughs> I'm not 
actually exaggerating. It was basically just saying, ah, if you don't like Doctor Who, I'll come round and fight you. <laughs> See, I think for me, the thing that makes reading or watching something from another country interesting are those little differences. I probably wouldn't have enjoyed reading Judy Bloom or Betsy Byers as much if they'd have changed some of the words. Because I used to quite like wondering what bologna was or why they were putting jelly in a sandwich. I found that sort of thing quite interesting. So I think I would have been disappointed if they'd have changed them, you know, for my kind of British frame of reference. But yeah, apparently they do do that to, to British books for children in America is that they do change them, which is kind of... Yeah, it's kind of sad, really. Well, I want a whole generation of American kids to be saying bin instead of dumpster. OK, well, for your next choice, we've got something that really, in a way, couldn't be more British if it tried. T'was in the year of 89 on that old Chicago line When the winter wind was blowing shrill The winds were froze, the wheels were cold Then the air brakes wouldn't hold And number nine came roaring down the hill Oh, the runaway train came down the track and she blew The runaway train came down the track and she blew The runaway train came down the track Her whistle wide and her throttle black And she blew That was Michael Holliday, the singing, whistling cowboy or whatever it was he was called, and also the singing voice of Sheriff Tex Tucker in Jerry and Sylvia Anderson's Four Feather Fall, singing the Runaway Train and the compilation <laughs> album All Aboard. Joe, I don't actually want to revisit this, but please go ahead. Uh, All Aboard was a compilation album for kids, an LP that I had when I was a child. When I say it was for kids, it was kind of songs that were, some of them were sort of nursery rhymes and things, or songs that were sort of child or supposedly songs that were child friendly so there were some nursery rhymes and stuff on it there were also things like the runaway train that kind of thing but it also had on it some songs that are kind of novelty songs that are maybe not that appropriate for children so one of the ernie was on it benny hill's ernie that's a which bit is, you know, it's, racy it's, yeah it's it's pretty innocent stuff but it's a little bit it's a little bit racy isn't it it's a little bit and also ernie does die doesn't it at the end if i remember rightly and comes so, back as a modern ghost we assume yeah Yes, yes. Yeah, bucking the ghost trend comes back as a modern ghost. That was on there. But also on there was my boomerang comeback. I can't eat Drake. Oh, good Lord. It's just dreadful. There is one line in that that... I'm not even going to allude to it. It was offensive even by, I don't know, 1961 or whenever it was released. Yeah, I remember. We used to listen to it. I used to have listened to this a lot when I was a child and my mum would put it on for me. And I even remember my mum thinking that it was a bit much because it is like, incredibly racist. I mean, like, just dreadful. Also on it, also a bit racist. I mean, like, not in intention, but certainly in execution. It was Goodness Gracious Me by Peter Sellers and Sophia Loren with Peter Sellers doing his comedy Indian voice, which again, not really that child appropriate either is it really it seemed a jarring inclusion on that album and it also had a couple of things in it that i found slightly frightening spucky the magic piano was on it which had a strange electronic voice of the piano a talking piano and i didn't like that apart from anything that's not how a piano would talk it also had on it the hippopotamus song by flanders and swan which is not frightening but for some reason when i was a child i didn't understand that it was about a hippopotamus so i just thought it was kind of like 
about people drowning in mud, really. And I found it. What, really like that public information film? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I think I must have. I had probably seen, you know, a swamp slash quicksand based public information film and sort of been terrified of the idea of drowning in mud. And then, obviously, this was referenced in the Hippopotamus song, and that's the picture that appeared in my head when I heard it. So I used to make my mum like skip that one. She's going, oh, I don't like this one. I don't like this one, mum. She'd like, she'd have to move it onto the next track. <laughs> I had this as well, and I had some problems with it in that I found some of the songs I, I didn't like for the reasons we stated. Some of them were just boring, I thought. Yeah. Especially Morning yeah. Town Ride by The Seekers, who, I'm going to say, I don't mind them. They're a reasonably good 60s band, but that's one of those things where, a bit like Sparky's Magic Piano, where when you're a kid, I don't say, oh, you like this? And I, I don't I don't understand no. it, and I don't even no. know what it is. Where yeah. does it come from? Why? What is Morning Town? I am not interested. But looking at it now, there's a few you tree people on here as well. Is Rolf on there? Is Rolf Harris on there? Oh, he is. is. Yeah. Two Can Little you... Boys is on there, or Jake the Peg, or it is Two Little Boys. Two yeah. Little boys. Which is not only by um, Nonce, it's also really mawkish as well, isn't it? It's a really kind of it's a really mawkish song. If and were Margaret Thatcher's favourite record as well, which says everything you need to know about her. She looks like how much is that doggy in the window as well, didn't she? I mean, and Telstar I... for some reason. I'm sure yeah. Joe Meek wouldn't have been keen on her. <laughs> no, no. So I quite like Telstar. I feel tainted now. Morning Town Ride was also in my book of 100 best recorder tunes, which I used to be able to play it on the recorder. And again, like, don't know why it was in there. Like, children are not interested in it. It's a thing that people think that children will like, but no. There's a couple of actually really good records on it, though. Like I say, there are things like The Laughing Policeman, where I just never <laughs> was never interested. But, no. you know, there's Right Set Fred by Bernard Cribbins. You know, George Martin production. Yes. The way it's all put together is fantastic. Goodness gracious me, George Martin as well bit more complicated that although if you ever hear the Peter and Sophia album there are actually sketches on there where they make fun of actual racists so it's a it's a difficult one to judge that for terribleness value there's My Brother by Terry Scott which is is awful but entertainingly awful there's also A Windmill in Old Amsterdam by Ronnie Hilton which I love which is written by two people I'm fascinated with Ted Dix and Miles Rudd who wrote all these insane kind of kid friendly almost nerdy rhyme proper pop songs in the 60s that's what they reviewed us no they wrote all these satirical reviews of kenneth williams and so on and they appear to have never stopped writing songs even to pause for lunch and who knows who they are now <laughs> yeah i had no idea who the writers of that song were or what else they did but that's really interesting i like uh, the million old amsterdam as well i also remember there being the other one i liked on it again it is terrible but i was really fond of it and i still kind of still makes me laugh a little bit which was the arthur Askey doing his oh, the beast. Uh, Song. The song, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I also, um, which I also sort of quite liked. <laughs> My main association with that is that Mark and Lard always used to play it, and they insisted that there was a line about the corned beef flowers, and I can never hear it any other way now. <laughs> The cover of this album is quite remarkable as well, because it basically it's a runaway train with all of the characters from the songs crammed onto it. Yeah, a really mismatched bunch as well. Those people would not get on if they were crammed, <laughs> they were crammed in together. I don't want, like, you know, Sparky the Magic Piano. Well, you wouldn't want Bernard Cribbins and his mate from Right So Fred anywhere near Sparky the Magic Piano, would you? Or a train. <laughs> yeah. And you certainly wouldn't want Rolf Harris anywhere near Terry Scott's little brother either, would you? That's the most disturbing image anyone's ever come up with in Lots of the Mill. <laughs> 
I'm sorry. I, I apologies. Apologies. I've got to admit that I used to own quite a lot of Rolf Harris records because oh, we had loads. some of them were quite good. I keep on mentioning things that I inherited from my siblings. My brother and sister had a big sort of like a case full of seven inch records that I sort of got given when I was little and I had my own like little portable record player in my room. In that set, there were loads of Rolf Harris ones. There was a Tiny Kangaroo Down, Jake the Peg. Also, there was a double A side. I think it was a double A side of Football Crazy and English Country Garden as well, which was odd. Odd ones for Rolf to cover, I think. Was it on that label where it's called something like Surprise, Surprise? And it had the yellow label with a rabbit jumping out of a hat on it. Maybe. I do remember that label. I don't remember if those records were on that label, but I do have a vivid memory of that logo. Actually, that was one label, and the other had a logo where it was lots of generic characters jumping out of presumably supposed to be the shoe from the old woman lives in the shoe. You know, it was teddy bears and so on. Generic apart from Ken Dodd at the front, complete with tickling stick. Oh, How on this record I am. <laughs> that's horrible. That's actually, that's frightening that. I mean, this is embarrassing to admit, but until I was probably in my kind of late 20s and I moved from London to the Northwest, it was only then that I realised that Notty Ash was a real place. I had genuinely thought it was a kind of whimsical, like a whimsical fantasy world. It is not whimsical, I can assure you. I was really, I was disappointed when I eventually saw it. I was like, sign for Notty Notty Ash is a real place. I was really, I was really startled. So in my head, Notty Ash is that place where Ken Dodd lived with his tickling stick and um, some, <laughs> some generic teddy bears and the Diddy Men, I suppose. I think also on one of the, I think it was Football Crazy and English Country Garden. One of those records on the back of the sleeve had a picture that you were supposed to be able to colour in. Yes. Which is a lot of things in those days seem to come with a picture you could colour in. Usually like printed on something that wasn't really that conducive to colouring in, like like a record sleeve is very shiny, so you couldn't really colour it properly. But I do remember that somebody had started to colour in the back of the sleeve on one of them, which is odd. Well, I've got mixed feelings about that now, because obviously, you know, it's just a nice idea to say to children, you can colour this in if you want. But, you know, the Watch With Mother programme, Teddy Edward, which yes. has kind of disappeared from history. Apart from the books, which, you know, you need basically to be an oil baron who's like not paid <laughs> any taxes for 50 years to afford. The one other piece of merchandise was, I think it was on that label, a seven-inch EP of two of the stories. You try finding a copy of that now where some kid hasn't coloured in the picture of Teddy Edward and gone outside the line. That's the thing, isn't it? That is that. That's if you're going to colour in the picture, that putting colouring opportunities on things for kids does ruin their resale value. Okay, we're well moving on to your last choice now, which hopefully, I really hope you didn't colour in anything in this. It's ringing. When Norris McWhorter replies, say this sentence with your mouth. Hello, Norris McWhorter, what is the biggest leaf? Answer me! (laughs) (laughs) Then make a written or intaped message of Norris McWhorter's response. Do this four or five hundred times and you will have an archive of 3am Biggest Leaf Inquiry Norris McWhorter responses which you can show or play to your friends or to interested members of the public. My favourite one is, leave me alone, please leave me alone. Why are you doing this? Why? <laughs> to do this 
Tommy, you must ring Norris McWhorter at three o'clock in the morning exactly and then ask him what the biggest leaf is. No other combination is acceptable. OK, that was a clip from Lee and Herring's Fist of Fun of Simon Quinn, like, bothering Norris McWhorter at three in the morning to ask what his biggest leaf was, which is something really we should all do more to certain people right at the moment. Yes, I am encouraging phone-based harassment of right-wing personalities there, but Joe, why have I put that there? Oh, my favourite reference book of all time is the Guinness Book of Pet Records, which was bought for me when I was about, probably about eight or nine, I think. As the title suggests, it was a Guinness Book of Records, but only pet-related. So I love animals, and as a child, I mean, I still am really, but as a child was obsessed with animals and pets particularly. And also facts, figures, statistics, records. So the whole thing was kind of almost tailored to my interests, the Guinness Book of Pet Records. Although I guess it must have been aimed at kids because of the pet thing but there was no sort of concession to that in the way it was written or printed it was mostly black and white pictures and tiny text I think that there was a a sort of a colour section in the middle with some colour pictures but it was mostly black and white pictures and really small text and it was absolutely full of pet related records which some of which were so implausible but because it was a Guinness book you knew they were verified so you could be confident that they were true and I remember on the cover there was one of the pictures on the cover was of the world's tallest dog which was a Great Dane a massive Great Dane <laughs> Shamgrit Danzas the Great Dane was called this massive brindle Great Dane standing with a man who I think was to be fair quite short but I mean this dog just <laughs> it should a dog should not be that big <laughs> And also inside, I remember, but some of them also weren't even so much just records as just kind of freaks, which I, as another thing I really like, sort of um, animal freaks. So there was one that was a, suppose, that was a cat with, and very much putting quote marks around this, wings. So it was a winged cat. But I mean, the wings were just kind of two very, very long. Well, I suppose they were just like some sort of growth (laughs) kind of growing out of either side of the back of this cat. So they were positioned like wings, but it was really odd. I mean, the cat was fine. It was perfectly happy, but it had these two. And I just remember the picture of its owners kind of standing on either side of it, holding up these wings. (laughs) This poor cat looking a bit embarrassed. I remember there was a very, very, very elderly parrot in it that had lost all its feathers just due to old age. I mean, no, he was quite happy, apparently. He'd lost all his feathers due to old age and he had a very overgrown beak. But apparently he was still very happy and also used to swear a lot of people. (laughs) I can imagine. Because, yeah, because he'd once belonged. He had been brought back to England by a sailor who had brought him abroad. So he'd learned a lot. Not Brown, then. (laughs) No, but he'd learned a lot of of very kind of salty language. (laughs) And he was about 130 now. He'd been in this family. These people. He'd been like a family heirloom parrot. And I also remember there was a dog that was so strong that it could pull a speedboat in the water. Just loads of amazing things like a tiny, tiny dwarf Pekingese that fitted inside a teacup. That was another one I remember. Just like endless joy from that book. Endless joy. That's the thing, though, about these. I mean, you could throw similar questions over the Guinness Book of Records itself, but all these spin-offs there used to be. Like, I had the Guinness Book of TV Facts and Feats, I think it was called. Yes. You know, and there were all kinds of movie ones and so on where they would be fascinating to a kid reading through, but you wonder, they were marketed as, you know, serious reference works for adults. And what adult ever thought, hmm, I need to check the Guinness Book of Pet Records. (laughs) Most people's pets, their records are things like most amount cost to me when you decided to pick a fight with a fox and the vet bills are astronomical. Most carpets pulled up, that sort of thing. Yeah, worst separation anxiety of new puppy. 
Yeah, it was like you say, they weren't really marketed at kids, but I can't imagine any adult would have wanted to read them. But what's weird is I can still remember loads of the records, which are probably not current anymore. So my knowledge will be very out of date. But like I remember that the world's oldest cat, the oldest recorded cat was a tabby called Mar, and she was 34. There was a goldfish called Fred that was like in its 40s as well, which I just because <laughs> I don't know anyone who managed to keep a goldfish for longer than about a fortnight. So that's pretty impressive, isn't it? I also remember there was a goat that looked like a unicorn that had like one single horn coming out of the middle of its head like a unicorn and was being proudly exhibited by a bloke who looked a bit like Yoffy from Finger Pops, sort of an old hippie in a polo neck. I must have spent hours and hours and hours of my childhood looking at that book. And I've still got it somewhere. I actually looked for it before we did this, but I think it's in the loft because we're decorating our spare room. Yeah, it's just just endless joy. And I don't know I, I don't know why they haven't continually revised and updated it. Well, I did manage to find before this, again, this book of TV facts and feats, which when I opened it randomly, fell open on the page with a photo of the test card, which I was not happy about <laughs> at all. But the weird thing is, even just looking at these two pages, it's all kinds of fascinating things, like the youngest lead actor in this programme, there was the thing about an episode of Play School being buried in a kind of capsule as an example of television on one particular day in history, the most successful Blue Peter appeal. There's also things like the television series which explained books to young children was The Book Tower. Now... There were programmes before that that did that. There were some between the book tower and the publication of this book, like Smith and Goody, that did. That's neither a fact nor a feat. The most controversial children's television programme in Britain is Grange Hill, brackets BBC Two. It was BBC One. <laughs> also, like, by what, what's the measure of controversy there? Was it more controversial than, like, I don't know, a Dennis Potter series? I, you know, come Dennis on. Potter didn't do children's series, no, to be fair. they're not children's, no. Okay, fine. I don't know how it could have been more controversial than the December Rose, which had the word shit in it, though. Can you guess what the last fact on these two pages might relate to? I cannot guess. You can tell me. The television programme which provides a, quote, magic carpet for children is... Enchanted Castle? No. It describes the host as platinum top disc jockey and marathon runner. Oh, God, no. No. <laughs> yeah, this book is very dated, but even... Oh. It's a on religious facts and feats on television which I don't think people would have much cause to look up. Again, I can't understand who this book was for, apart from me, leafing through it as a child not realising most of the facts in it were wrong and I've just looked through and found a photo of David Bellamy linking back to his previous <laughs> appearance on the show. Presenting Bellamy's New World, apparently, which seems to involve him being sat on some packing crates in front of some of those giant cactuses. Another Guinness book I had was the Guinness Book of Names, which was literally just a book about names of things. So it had things in it, like I mean, really weird. So it had things in it like lists of the most popular boys and girls names by decade in England and in America. And it had some examples of like, you know, different kinds of surname and like how people's surnames originate and different naming conventions in different countries. And also things like how people name products and housing estates and cars with some sort of amusing anecdotes about how some of them like don't translate into other languages very well and stuff. I mean, whose idea? was that I mean I was going to say who was it for but I had it so obviously I was interested but I can't imagine anyone else really really wanting to read that book or having the idea for it in the first place well the idea may have been that the Quirter brothers wanted more money to fund the freedom association <laughs> 
I imagine so. I don't, I don't I think that's even libelous to say that. I think no, it's probably no. true. Oh, it's such it's so upsetting that Norris McWhirter was a wrong one, isn't it? I want Norris to be a kindly buffin. I don't want Norris to be a horrible Nazi. It's terrible. I dream of the day when that kid correcting him about a fact on Record Breakers <laughs> turns up on YouTube. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Confidently correcting Norris. There's one thing we need more of in the world right now. It's people confidently correcting Norris McQuirter. Yeah, just confidently correcting the far right generally, really. We need a lot more of that. I can't put it any better than that. Joe, it's been brilliant. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Can't Help Thinking About Me by Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org. Remember when you rang me up and you got on your knees?